Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Um, yes, hi, my name's Peter. I've been at this church for many years. If you're visiting, it's, it's great to be able to speak to you this morning. Um, if you are visiting, you may not know, you may do, we're in the middle of a series looking at the parables of the, uh, the parables that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. So we're partway through that series. I think we've got the header of the parable we are looking at today on the next slide, which is we are looking today at the parable of the hidden treasure. So that's where we're looking at today. It's Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. It's a very short parable. Um, it's only, in fact, a single sentence. So you might think there's not much to say, but actually I think there is quite a lot to say in it. And if I was to try and summarise what I hope that you take away from this parable today, I'd summarise it as this, that this parable speaks of the incomparable value of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of the incomparable value of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what I hope we're going to discover today. Now, the next thing, this is no trick. This is a genuine £20 note. It's not fake. It is free for anybody who wants it. I'm going to leave it on the table, and at some point during my talk, if you want that £20, you can go and take it. It is there for anyone who wants it. Okay, now, before we actually look into the parable itself... Before we look into the parable itself, there we go. Okay. There we go. I will, uh, well done, Simi. I'll mention, I'll mention something of that later on. There is no trick. Simi didn't know I was going to say that. I didn't plan it in advance. Um, we'll get to that later. Okay, so before we actually look at the parable, before we look at the parable, I thought it might just be worth reminding ourselves why is it, in fact, that Jesus speaks in parables at all in Matthew chapter 13? Why is it that Jesus speaks in parables? Now, you might think that, it's often said, in fact, that Jesus speaks in parables to help us understand very complicated spiritual truths in ways that are slightly easier to understand. That's often what we hear about, but I don't think that's actually the main reason Jesus speaks in parables in Matthew chapter 13, and I'll give you two reasons. Firstly, the first parable is the parable of the sower. You may remember that. And actually, Jesus has to go on to explain it in normal conversations to the people afterwards. They struggled to understand the truth within the parable. He had to speak in normal conversation to explain what it actually meant. So why didn't Jesus just do that to start with? But the second reason is even more compelling, and you'll need to go back and look at some of the um, earlier part of the chapter. Jesus gives his own answer to the very question, why do you speak in parables? And I'll paraphrase slightly, but basically Jesus says he begins to speak in parables so that some people um, would understand these spiritual truths that are hidden and other people would not. In other words, Jesus speaks in parables to conceal spiritual truth about the kingdom from some people, but ensures that other people can understand these spiritual truths as the Spirit of God reveals the message behind that parable. Now we might find that quite hard to hear. Why would Jesus do that? But that's what he does, that's what he says. Now you need to go back into chapter 12 to understand some of the context. So in chapter 12 what has happened is the Pharisees have come to Jesus and they've said to him, this man that you have just healed who is blind and mute, that is basically the work of the devil. They attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. 
And in that discourse that follows, Jesus says to them, basically, you are attributing the work of the Holy Spirit as demonic, and that's not forgivable. And it's on that very same day, you need to know this, it's the very same day that he then starts to speak in parables so that some people would no longer be able to understand the spiritual truths of the kingdom. Okay, now the author, John, the author and speaker and pastor John Piper, he actually says this is the moment where Jesus brings judgment upon the Pharisees. They have had opportunity over many months, perhaps years, where Jesus is speaking in the temple, in the streets, in the, in the fields and so on, to receive him, but they hardened his heart to them and Jesus basically says, enough. The spiritual truths that I want to share are no longer to be received by you. And Jesus uses parables to do that. It's quite hard to hear. But the reason I say all of that is that that should humble us this morning. That when we come to the parables, particularly, in fact all of scripture, but when we come to parables especially, we need to be humble because anything that we understand from them is because of the mercy and kindness of God that he has revealed this truth to us. It's not through our intelligence. It's not because we've worked something out. It's because God in his kindness has said to us, here is the spiritual truth packed within this parable that I want you to understand. So we should come humble. We shouldn't be like the Pharisees, proud, upright and rigid. Quite the opposite. We should come this morning to the scriptures kind of in a lowly position, in a humbled position saying, Holy Spirit, will you have mercy on me and allow me to see the truth that you have packed deep within this parable? And I hope that's the attitude that you have. It's certainly the one I want to encourage you to have. And so before we actually look at the parable, I thought we could, in light of what I've just said, just to pray. Um, I, I know you just sat down, but I, I would like you just to stand up while we pray before we come to the actual scripture. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are here with us today. We thank you that you speak to us. Holy Spirit, will you continue to speak to us through this parable? We want to be humble before you and recognize that you are sovereign over all things and you decide whether we're to understand and grapple with and receive the truths buried within this parable. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do that work in our hearts. I pray that we would understand something of the greatness of the kingdom of God, that it would go deep into us, that it would affect us and change us in the way that we live our lives. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, Please set your seats. Okay, so the parable, I hope, is now... The next slide will be on the screen, I hope. The parable of the hidden treasure. And it says this, it's just a single sentence or two sentences... The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. What we're going to see today is something of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's in those first few words there. What is the kingdom of heaven like? And I don't know whether you find that kingdom of heaven phrase, just referring to heaven, immediately takes your mind Somewhere like this, is it something spiritual? Is it something literal and physical? Is it something in the future? Are we talking about something in the future and also here now, heaven and earth now? Or is it all of that? And, and actually, those things are really important to think through and, and work through. But actually, I feel that today those thoughts could be a bit of a distraction for what I think Matthew wants to speak to us about through the words of Jesus. Why is it that Matthew uses the word heaven at all? And why didn't he just use the word kingdom of God? because the other writers of the Gospels use the kingdom of God primarily. And the main reason is Matthew is writing to predominantly a Jewish people, 
And they struggled. In fact, they didn't want to even speak out the name God. They revered it too much. So Matthew, in his kindness, really, in his sensitivity to who they are, chooses to use the word heaven when he could have just used the word God. So I guess what I want to say to you is these terms can be interchangeable. And so actually, what, if you are distracted by this whole thing about heaven, which is important, actually for today I want you to think instead, actually Matthew is talking about something of the likeness of the kingdom of God. In other words, what is it like to be in God's kingdom? What is it like to be a child of, of the king? What is it like to be a royal subject of King Jesus? And that is what I hope we will see today as we look at this parable. Something of what it is like to be one of his. The Bible uses lots of descriptions. It talks about us being children, about being friends of God, being a royal priesthood, being co-heirs with Christ, all sorts of different things. And I hope that today you'll start to see, oh, that's what it is like to be included, to be included in that multitude of people who are children of the king. So that's what I want us to take today. And I'm really going to appeal to your feelings. I sometimes get a bit nervous and uncomfortable when preachers try and appeal to my feelings. But today, unashamedly, I'm going to appeal to your feelings. I want you to feel and to get really caught up in what does it feel like to be included as one of the king's children? What is it like to be in his kingdom? How does it feel? And if you're not feeling anything, then you can absolutely blame me and not the text. Because this text, as you'll see gets to the feelings. It gets to the man's joy, as we will see in this, and all other things as well. And there are two points that I want to try and make from this parable. There are actually many, but there are two things that I want to focus on today. The first is, his kingdom has incomparable value to anything else. His kingdom has incomparable value to anything else. And then the next point, which which we'll get to later, is there is a transaction that must take place for you to enter the kingdom. There's a transaction that must take place for you to enter the kingdom. Before we even get to that first point, I know this probably feels like a really long introduction, but I hope it's helpful. Where does this parable fit in with the others in Matthew 13? Because there are seven. And they actually work in couplets with the seventh then at the end. So the first two, I think it's on the next slide... The first two, the sower and the weeds, they speak of something of the nature of the kingdom of God in this age. In other words, God is sovereign over this world today. He always has been, always will be. And in this age that we live in today, what those two parables help us understand is living side by side, you have believers and unbelievers living in the kingdom of God today. As God is over his kingdom, over the earth, you have believers and non-believers side by side. So those parables speak something of the nature of his kingdom in this age. The next two the mustard seed and the yeast, they speak of something of the power of the kingdom. So the mustard seed and the the yeast, almost naked, uh, almost invisible to the naked eye, the seed grows to a huge tree, the yeast infiltrates through the entire dough, they speak of something of the power of the kingdom. But then the next two, which ours is one of those today, and then you'll see it again next week, these are the two which really start to address the value of the kingdom. We will see now the value of the kingdom. And that is a word I've said already many times and you'll hear me continue to say it as we go through this morning. The value of the kingdom of God. Our parable refers to the kingdom as like treasure. So it gives that away straight away. It's not rocket science. It is speaking of something valuable. What happens with this treasure? Well, a man 
He discovers it. It's been buried in the ground. And what he does, he then goes and buries that treasure. He sells all his possessions to enable him to buy the field to take the treasure. It's a pretty simple story. That's what happens. This treasure is buried within the ground, which he then discovers. Now, finding treasure buried in the ground would not have been particularly unusual in Jesus' day. Remember, they didn't have sort of the banking infrastructure that we have, where you go and deposit your money, your life savings in a bank. Uh, Very often, wealthy people would have buried their treasure, their life savings in the ground. And you must remember that that part of Israel and Palestine had wars frequently. Land was changing hands continually between people. And very often, someone wouldn't have even time to take their treasure out of the ground as an enemy was approaching. They just had to flee. And so it wasn't that unusual that you would come across something very valuable buried within the ground. And that's what happens with this man. And what does he do next? Well, he covers it up, as I say, presumably so that no one else gets to it first, so he has the opportunity to sell his possessions to take it himself. Do you find that ethically difficult? Do you find an ethical issue here? Do you think, how could God, how could Jesus kind of advocate dishonesty like this? Shouldn't the man have just gone and told the actual landowner what he discovered? Um, I don't know whether you thought that. I think some people do. Um, I'm going to touch on the ethical point, not because it's the main point, but for some people, unless you deal with the ethics, you kind of all struggle to hear everything else that I'm then going to say. So I'm going to deal with the ethics in two really quick points. Firstly, there are lots of Bible scholars who say that in that time there were ancient Jewish laws that effectively gave rights to people who found something, a bit like finders keepers. Okay, so that was an ancient Jewish law. Secondly, had he been unethical, surely he would have just run off with it and kept his own savings? Why would he actually go and sell his savings to buy the field? So that he would have just, if he was dishonest, he would have gone and legged it and had both. So actually, we're not to try and grapple with an ethics within this parable. That's not really the point. Actually, the main point, and in fact, true of all parables, is we shouldn't be pressing parables too literally in every aspect. We're to understand the, the thrust of the point that is being made. And in this case, this man has found something incredibly valuable and he will stop at absolutely nothing to take hold of this treasure. And that's the point. It is of such value that he will stop at nothing to take hold of it. I don't know if you think it's interesting, if you've ever thought about it with this parable, it goes against every consensus among investors in the world today. Every investor today will say, Hedge your bets slightly. Diversify your investments. Don't put everything in one investment. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Now, true, some people like more risk, some people like less risk, but no financial advisor will come to you and say, take your life savings and put it all in one thing. Jesus is saying, invest everything you have in the one thing that matters. Invest everything in one thing. This man, he goes and sells everything he has to get the one thing it is so valuable Jesus says there is nothing else worth your investment put everything you have all that you have into the one thing that really matters it is of incredible value the kingdom of God is valuable beyond anything that can compare and you are to invest everything you have in that one thing just continuing on this thing about value I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but the value of something can in part be attributed to the other thing that you sort of left behind to receive. i rephrase that. The value of something can often be found in the alternative that you've left behind. And I'll try and give an example to explain. Imagine you're going on holiday 
And I'm not great on beach holidays because I get sunburnt and... But most people like beach holidays. Let's imagine you are sort of lying on a beach, the sun is coming down, the water looks beautiful and deep blue, and it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. I don't know if you're like me, but part of the reason it is so good is because of what you've left behind to be there. Okay? And I don't know if you're like me, sometimes if you're in a different part of the world, you're looking at your watch and thinking, what's the time zone in the UK? It's 9 o'clock on Monday morning. Oh, yeah, Craig and Rob, they're logging onto their computers. They've got a whole week, and here I am in the sand, the sea, the cocktails. Part of the value is sometimes, for us, if I'm honest, a little bit like what we've left behind. And there's actually an important point I'm trying to make from this, which is there's only one kingdom, there's only one kingdom that is worthy of your investment. There are two kingdoms, actually, but there's only one worthy of your investment. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God... And there is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And there is a massive contrast between the two. A massive contrast between the two. Most people don't give it much thought at all, actually. These are of eternal significance. Don't think there's the Christians in the kingdom of God, there's kind of the really evil demonic stuff over here, the kingdom of Satan, and then there's a massive amount of people in the middle just floating around, neither in one nor the other. Jesus is really clear, you're either for me or you're against me. There is a kingdom of light, and there is a kingdom of darkness. The contrast is massive. The value of the kingdom of light should be great enough on its own, but consider what you're leaving behind. Consider what you're leaving behind as he saves you. It is a wonderful thing. The value of the kingdom is beyond compare. All these other kingdoms will pass away. Daniel chapter 7, the end of Revelation, talks about the destiny for Satan, his kingdom, and everyone with him. Only the kingdom of God endures forever. Make sure you're investing everything in the one thing that really matters. Jesus himself, he came physically on earth, God's own son. He was the treasure that we behold. He was the king of kings, the eternal one. He was walking amongst the people and so many of them were even blinded to the very treasure right in front of their eyes. He was within touching distance and so many people didn't even bother to make any real inquiries into who he really was. Don't be like that with Jesus. Invest everything you have in the one thing that mattered. Um, David, King David, he certainly understood the contrast. You may know the verse. It's fairly well known. I hope it's on the next slide. Psalm 84. This is what David said. He understood the contrast. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wicked. David would accept one single day as a doorkeeper in the house of God compared to the alternative. Such is the contrast, such is the value of the kingdom of God. The man in our parable, he discovered the kingdom. He discovered the treasure. And such was the value, such was the contrast to everything else he owned or could own. He stopped at nothing to take hold of it. His kingdom is incomparable to anything else. Okay, I've said the word value a lot and a lot and a lot and I'm going to keep on doing it. Have you discovered the value of his kingdom today? Have you discovered the value of the kingdom of Jesus today? Um, Have you tasted and seen how good he is today? This morning as we've worshipped, have you tasted how good he is? Have you considered how perfect are his ways again this morning? Do you think about his ways and think, your ways are perfect? Emma prayed out a really honest prayer. We don't always understand around us today how things can work the way they do, but his ways are perfect. Have you thought about that again this morning? Do you look at the creation that you see in the world around us and think, wow, God created that in six days. He just spoke it into being. 
Have you considered how great this God is that you can be a subject to, that you can be a child of? Do you read the stories in the Old Testament? Amazing stories. Do you read the one where God um, delivered his people from slavery in Egypt through miraculous intervention? And do you know what? It's in about six weeks after that happens that they build a golden calf to worship instead of him. Do you think about that story and think, God, how did you show such restraint? This is an amazing God. This is an amazing king. I hope you've understood something of the value of the king and the kingdom that he oversees. I hope, like that man, you are being stirred into what you need to do about it. Most of all, Lally, so hopefully that is in communion earlier, perhaps most of all, do you look at the cross again this morning and think, wow, and want to join in with that worship song that says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. Such is the majesty of our king, such is his greatness, Do you sense, do you feel something of the kingdom here today? Do you want to be a part of it? Our second point then, I hope it's on the next slide. There we go. Um, Apologies, I don't know why I've got number one and number one. Um, (laughs) Not sure how that happened. Anyway, second point, there is a transaction that must take place for you to enter the kingdom. If, like me, you've been touched by the value of the kingdom of God how do we find our place in that kingdom there is a transaction that must take place now I don't know whether there's a bit of twitchiness going going around the room by me even suggesting this word transaction I don't know whether you're thinking well surely salvation is nothing at all to do with any transaction that we can play a part in whatsoever surely this is a, a free gift of grace that it's not by human works lest anyone could boast it's what Ephesians 2 says, and of course that's true. So I'm wanting to talk about a transaction in a different sense. It's really important you listen to what I'm saying when I talk about a transaction must take place in order for you and for me to enter into the kingdom. What am I saying? Well, look back at our parable again. It says that the man bought the field. Let's not kind of ignore that word. He bought the field. There was a transaction there. He saw the value of the treasure, so what he did was he went sold all his possessions to buy the field to get the treasure. In his case, the transaction for him to have the kingdom was a monetary one, in his case. But, and this is where you must hear me really clearly, I'm not saying for you and for me, the transaction required to get to the kingdom of heaven is monetary. We are not involved in a monetary transaction with God. Jesus said, a rich man can no more enter the kingdom than you can squeeze a camel through the eye of the needle. Jesus says, your wealth, your money has absolutely no bearing whatsoever in your entering the kingdom. It must be some other type of transaction which I'm getting at. And indeed it is. So consider Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. This is quite a well-known um, Old Testament verse which points towards the new covenant. Um, it says this, Come, all you who are thirsty... Come to the waters, and you have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. I think in this verse, we tend to notice the the come with no money. Come without money or cost bit. I think that's the bit we tend to notice. It's, It's a free gift, come with no money. We don't need money for this. We miss the bit, I think, that it still says, nevertheless, buy. Buy and eat buy wine. I think we tend to miss the buying bit. There's still a need to buy something. The mercy for us is that it's not something we can buy with money. 
There's not something of a sort of a monetary value in this transaction, but there is something to buy. What is this tr- transaction that I'm getting at? The American preacher John MacArthur, who I've only recently discovered, I think he's fantastic, um, he describes the transaction of salvation from this parable like the following. So this is what John MacArthur says. He describes the transaction like this. You give up all you have and receive all that he is. You give up all you have and receive all that he is. So God doesn't force himself upon us. God doesn't force himself upon us. To receive all that he is, we must give up all that we have. I'm going to go through a few different situations that Jesus had with various people. The verses that won't appear on the screen, so don't feel the need to flip between pages in your Bible. Just listen to the various scenarios I'm about to describe where Jesus speaks with different people, and I hope it will explain and put more back, more understanding to this point that I'm making, which is to receive all that he is, we must give up all that we are. There are three people who speak to Jesus in Luke chapter 9 about entering the kingdom of God and following him. To the first, Jesus says this, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It sounds quite cryptic. We don't always understand that verse. What is Jesus saying? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Effectively, what he's saying to this man is, to receive me, to follow me, you need to give up your comfort and your independence. How? It's effectively Jesus saying, I've got nowhere to lay down my head. Can I come and stay with you? Will you invite me into your home and let me stay? Jesus is challenging this man's independence, this man's comfort. Will he give up on those things to receive Jesus? The next man, he says, can I please go and bury my father before I come and follow you? And actually, it's, it's unlikely that what he means is that his dad has literally just died and there's some funeral arrangements in place. More likely is that actually what he's saying is, can I please wait for however long it is for my father to die so I can have the inheritance, and then sure, I'll come. That's, probably, that's what most Bible scholars interpret that verse to mean, that he's probably someone who's just waiting for the money, because maybe he feels that his father is soon to die, maybe he's in old age and he's thinking, now is not the right time for me to come and follow you, can I please wait for my inheritance and then I'll come? And Jesus responds to him, very stark, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, Jesus is saying, waiting for your inheritance will not bring life to you. You will remain dead. And Jesus says, instead, you need to leave the money behind and preach the kingdom of God. The first one is told, you need to give up on your comfort and independence to receive me. The second one is, you need to be willing to let go of any money to receive me. And the third one, he says, can I go and say goodbye to my family first? And Jesus says, those who turn backwards are not fit for the kingdom of God. So three different things Jesus is really pressing here. He's saying, comfort and independence, you need to be able to lay that down to receive me. Um, Money and, and wealth, you need to lay those things down to receive me. Even relationships, you need to be able to leave those things to one side to receive me. Jesus is saying you need to give up anything that you would hold on to dearly if you are to receive me and the treasure that I bring. Likewise, we must give up all that we have to receive him. I don't know whether you try and combine some of this stuff and think, well, am I, am I, am I, is Jesus being a little bit too kind of extreme in all this? Can we not surely just combine stuff? Can't I try and combine a sort of a, a sensible or a proportionate amount of need for money and wealth with following Jesus? Can I combine kind of a sensible level of investment in relationships with Jesus? 
Now, we'll come on to some of the practical outworkings of this later. But Jesus, if we're being really true to what he says, is he doesn't give the room for compromise. He doesn't give the room for compromise. We are to give up, give up all that we have to receive all that he is. Now, really quickly, I'm going to go through a few more situations in Matthew's Gospel of where Jesus says some of these points again to other people. In Matthew chapter 10, listen to this. He says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And listen to this. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That last verse, that last sentence, is the transaction. We give up all we have. We even become willing to lose our life for the sake of Christ. And in so doing, we receive all that he is. Another one in Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see the transaction? We're to deny ourselves taking the cost that come with that if we are to follow him. That verse is one that's often used to kind of challenge and quash the prosperity gospel message that you often hear about, this idea that actually, no, it's not right that being a Christian just means you're guaranteed wealth and prosperity, but actually you are to take up your cross and follow him. And that part of the verse, I think, is remembered more, the take up your cross bit, but actually it's both. It's deny yourself and take up your cross. I think sometimes we can think of the taking up your cross bit and we th- can think in our minds of, sort of almost like stoic resistance to any opposition that comes. But I wonder if actually denying yourself is the harder challenge. I wonder if denying yourself is actually harder than that. Regardless, whichever is the harder of the two for you, the point is they're both there. Jesus says you must deny yourself and take on any of the costs that come with that if you are to follow him. I think this is the final one in Matthew's Gospel that I'm going to just refer to. The rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, I've kept all of the commandments of Moses. What else must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus says to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Again, we see the transaction. He is told he needs to give all that he has away to the poor, and then he will have the treasure in heaven. So do I get the treasure, do I get the kingdom by just giving my money to the poor? No. But you must be willing to abandon everything and give up on anything that you have to affirm that he is Lord of your life. That's the deal. You must be willing to abandon anything to affirm that he is Lord of your life if you were to receive him. Okay, so, the £20 notes. Simi came and took it. And that was great. For the baby, which is lovely. So why was I doing this? It was a free £20. It was absolutely no... There's no ties. I'm not asking for it back after. There's nothing like that. It was a free £20 note. It was, it was a free gift. Someone actually had to physically do something to get this free gift. Simi got out of his chair. In fact, Simi's sitting the furthest away from the table. He walked the whole way across. Now... It's a little bit of a silly illustration, but some of you might have been thinking, oh, I don't want to be that one. I don't know what that... What will people think of me? Are people going to think I'm a bit greedy? Are people going to think I'm a bit hard up? Um, is it... Will people think better of me if I let someone else have it? Like, you might be thinking, oh, what will people think about me 
if I come and take that free gift. But Simi didn't. Simi walked across and took it. Okay, it's not a perfect illustration. £20 is not incomparable in value. And actually, I don't want to over-egg it. The cost of coming up, the potential embarrassment, the potential awkwardness that some of you may have felt, that's not the biggest thing in the world either. It's not a perfect illustration, but you'll see the point. There is a free gift on offer, but there is a cost involved. You must lay down yourself to receive all that Christ is for you. I'm going to ask a question. I've got my own answer to it, but see what you think. At the moment that people first discover the joy of the Lord Jesus, at that first point where they confess him as Lord, do they fully understand the ramifications that I've been going through? Do people fully understand all that is required to be a Christian at the moment you first come to faith in the Lord Jesus? I suspect not. I think for the vast majority of people, they are not aware of the full ramifications that I've just been talking about and that Jesus spoke of. Those ramifications come later. And for some of you, maybe they're just coming to you today. And so the question is, when those ramifications are revealed to you, are you willing to lay down everything for the sake of him? To receive all that he is. I think sometimes, I'll definitely be like this if I'm honest, I would like to think, if there's a day at some point in the future where Jesus puts upon my heart to give away all of my money, I think in that moment I'll be willing. Here, today as I see it, I think, yeah, I think I'll be willing. It's easy to think that. It's easy to think, if God actually, at some point in the future says, actually, he's called me not to pursue that particular relationship, I reckon if that's what God asked me in that moment, yeah, I think I'm going to be willing. Sometimes it's easy to say that right now. What I want to encourage you to do over the next few days is for you to ask God to really reveal the real truth within your heart. Not to make you feel bad if you aren't really, really, really willing to leave these things aside for him, but to ask him to help you in it. Psalm 139 sort of cries out to Jesus to search me and know me, to know my heart. Uh, sorry, search my heart and know me. I'm writing scribbled, what's the verse? Search me and know my heart and my mind, Lord. Like This idea, Lord, you know my heart better than I know myself. I want to be willing, and I hope that I'll be willing, if you ask me to give up anything. But Lord, you know my heart better than I even know myself. Will you help me to work on these things if there is any part of me that is unwilling to lay things down for you? I said I'd be practical at some point. I'm awful at bringing practical applications to talks. It's the thing I find the hardest of all. What am I saying here? Am I saying that it is wrong for you to have any money in your bank balance today? No, I'm not. I am saying it's wrong if God asks you to give up your money for you to hold on to it. Am I saying it's wrong for you to pursue relationships today? No, I'm not. I am saying that if God asks you to leave a relationship aside, then I'm saying that's what you need to do. There is a very practical part of this, which is, am I willing, Lord, whatever you would ask of me, am I willing to lay that thing down for the sake of the king? That's what it is to give all that we have, to receive all that he is. Okay, I've spoken longer than I thought I would do, but I am sort of drawing to a close. Um, some of you may know the story of the, the American missionary Jim Elliott, and we've got a picture of him there. Um, he's, quite well, he's quite a well-known missionary. He was born in, in America, as I said, he, in 1927. In 1950, he travelled to Ecuador to take the gospel to various tribes who were living deep within the rainforest. Along with four other men, um, they used that yellow little biplane to fly over the trees and to drop 
gifts and presents and various things down to the men below. The reason they did that, they had no shared language. They had to just sort of drop gifts down to build up a trust um, and to try and build up relationships with these men and women below. And eventually, they felt they had earned enough trust to be able to land this plane. There was a strip um, within the forest. They were able to land the plane and then make it on foot to these tribesmen and women. And so they did that, and they began to build up relationships with them to such an extent that on one occasion, they actually took one of the men in them in that yellow plane and gave them a flight. On January the 8th, 1956, the missionaries made another visit. And on that day, a group of 10 people killed them all with spears on the spot. And Jim was just 28 years old. In his journal, you'll see the quote there, in his journal years before, he had expressed his belief that the work of the kingdom of God was more important than life on earth itself. And in citing Matthew 10, which we looked at earlier, the original sort of King James version that was in his diary says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. In citing that verse, Jim Elliot went on to write those words on the screen, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool. An amazing attitude, and it's exactly the same attitude of the man in our parable. He was not foolish to invest everything he had in the one and only thing that really matters. He's not foolish. Incredible wisdom, in fact. Uh, Phil, I don't know if you want to to come up, because we're going to sing in response in a moment. Have you rediscovered the value of the kingdom today? Have you rediscovered just how great the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you? Have you rediscovered how much you really, really want to be a child in the courts of the king, serving him? Have you rediscovered that? We're going to sing, as I say, a song in response. And on the next slide, we'll see the final verse. We'll sing the hymn through in full, but this is the the final verse that really touches upon, I hope, the kind of response that should be within us when we consider what Jesus has done. Those words there were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so so divine demands my soul, my life and my all. Now let's stand together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, treasure, sorry, hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.